I am a person that is particularly attached to this uh, this little black thing I carry around in my pocket. Uh, it's an iPhone, or you know, for some of you, you might be weird people that don't use those and you use something else. But I have it with me all the time. You know, it's rarely outside of a three-foot radius from my body. Usually, I know where it is or what's going on with it, whether somebody's called me or texted me or emailed me, and. Uh, you know, I've got my whole life on there. I've got my schedule. I've got my to-do list. I've got all my contacts. I know that at any moment I can get in contact with, with most of you and, uh, you know, my whole family and, and everybody that I care about. And so usually it's with me all the time. But there are moments, like if I'm going to meet somebody for lunch and I'm running late where I just kind of jump out of the house really fast show up to lunch and then realize I don't have my phone with me. And I don't know if any of you have ever been in the situation, but for me, I panic in those moments. I feel like I've left a, a shoe at home or my belt at home or, you know, something more a part of me than this, this little electronic device should be. Like I feel like I, you know, what's going to happen if, if Jen needs to get a hold of me and she can't? What's going to happen if, you know, I need to look up something on Google and I just, I just can't do it until I get home. And, you know, for you it might not be your phone, it might be, you know, your purse or, or, or something else. Uh, but I just feel tied to and dependent upon it. And I'm sure that you can relate to that. And, I mean, the reality is, is that whether it's a cell phone or a purse or our car keys or our wallet or, or, or whatever it is, these are in the grand scheme of things, very unimportant things. They matter to us way more than they should, and things that should matter to us more don't. As I was thinking this week, as we're you know, going to be talking about the Holy Spirit's empowerment of us for the mission that Jesus has called us to, I was just kind of drawn to, to Psalm 51, where David is, is confessing his sin uh, that when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and he's praying to God and he's confessing, he's repenting, he says this line. He says, he's pleading with God not to withdraw from him and he prays, take not your Holy Spirit from me. He asks God, he begs God, he pleads with God, because of my sin, because of what I've done, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And I would imagine that I mean, I know this is true in my life, and I would think that it's true in yours as well, that we don't often pray prayers like that. When we confess our sin, when we repent of our sin, we aren't pushed to beg God not to take His Holy Spirit from us. And I think that what that shows is not that we have a greater understanding of theology, not that we have a greater understanding of the Gospel, but because we have a less dependence upon the Spirit. David knew that the Spirit's work in him and through him and in his life was a vital aspect of his relationship with God, his function as the king of God's people. He knew that without the Spirit, he could not do what God had called him to do. But for us, we don't even think about praying that. And that's because we either, number one, don't recognize how much we need the Spirit, or number two, we're not living lives that require His involvement. This should be something that we're praying for. This should be something that we're worried about happening. I should be more 
concerned and consumed with the reality that His Spirit may not be filling me in any given moment than I am that I might not have my cell phone in my pocket or my car keys with me. It should be of greater importance to us and greater need to us and we should be living lives which are entirely dependent upon Him. And if we're not, then that's something that should bother us. And so this morning, really for the next two weeks, we're going to talk about how the Spirit empowers us for His mission. This week, it's going to be kind of a nuts and bolts of who the Spirit is and what He does. And then next week, we're going to come back and we're going to focus on a few chapters in 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about how the Spirit gifts us for ministry. And so we'll talk about some of the kind of supernatural things the Spirit does in the people of God, and we'll talk about some of the ordinary, everyday things the Spirit does in the people of God. But this week, uh, we want to look at this passage in John 16, where Jesus talks about sending the Spirit, and He talks about how it is to our advantage. And I hope that over the last few weeks as we've talked about the kingdom more, we've talked about how big Jesus' gospel was and how small our gospel is in comparison. We've talked about how we seek God's kingdom and how we spread God's kingdom. I hope that as we've, we've talked together about what God requires of us in regard to the mission that Jesus put us on, I hope that we've left here kind of overwhelmed by what God calls us to do. I hope that we've left here realizing that there's no way we can do what God has called us to do. I hope that as we've, we've thought together about the task of making disciples of all nations, of spreading His kingdom across the face of this world, I hope that instead of going out and thinking, man, this is going to be easy, I can do these three things, and then I'll start spreading His kingdom in the way that I should, I hope that instead of that, what we've felt is kind of an overwhelming desire to give up. Because really, that's the kind of response these things should evoke in us. We shouldn't come to God's Word, look at the commands it places upon us, look at the call He has on our life and say, I got this. If I can just get my schedule right, if I can spend enough time in the Word, if I can just do all these things and muster up enough willpower and muster up enough discipline, then, then I can live exactly like He's called me to live without any failure. If that's what we think, then we are severely misguided. The reality is, is that there is no way we can do what He's called us to do without the Spirit working in us and through us. God's Word tells us that we cannot, we cannot effectively live the Christian life without His Spirit. Uh, there's a verse in First Peter says it's the Spirit who sanctifies us. Without the Spirit, we do not grow in our faith. Philippians three three says we worship by the Spirit of God. If the Spirit's not working through us, when we stand here, when we sing songs, when we read words on the screens, we're not worshiping God. We're just singing. Without the Spirit, we can't worship God. Galatians five sixteen says the Spirit keeps us from gratifying the desires of the flesh. If you want to fight sin, if you want to say no to sin, the only way we do that is with the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13.14 says that the Holy Spirit is how we have fellowship with one another. If we get together and spend time together and we do it without the Spirit's involvement, we're not having Christian fellowship. We're just hanging out. Romans 5.5 5 says the Holy Spirit is the means 
It's the manner in which God pours out His love on us. We cannot understand, we cannot feel, we cannot benefit from God's love without the Holy Spirit's work in us. Also, we cannot effectively minister for Him, for His kingdom, without the Spirit. His Word tells us that the Spirit brings conviction. The Spirit equips us for ministry. The Spirit bears witness through us to Christ. And the key word in those statements that we cannot effectively live the Christian life and we cannot effectively be a minister for His kingdom are the words effectively. Right? You and I can go out and try to do these things well. We can fight sin without the Spirit's involvement. But the effect of it will not be Christ-exalting, God-glorifying, kingdom-furthering things. It will puff us up and give us pride and arrogance about our fight over sin and just how much discipline we have. We need the Spirit. So let's read this passage where Jesus talks about it. John 16, 1-7. Jesus says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to Him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. So in this passage, Jesus is is preparing the disciples for His departure. He's leaving. He knows what's going to happen. He knows what's coming next. And He is teaching them these things that they're going to need to know so that they can respond rightly to His death and then do what He's called them to do afterwards. And the key verse we're focusing on in this passage is verse 7, where Jesus says to them, He knows that they're upset. He knows that they're distraught. He knows that they're concerned about what He's told them. And He says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. So Jesus is saying here, that it is to their advantage, it is better for them, it is better for us, for Jesus to leave the disciples and send the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's presence in their lives is better than Jesus' presence in their lives. So that's what we need to get this morning. As we look at the Holy Spirit, as we look at His ministry to us, the main point for us is that the departure of Jesus and the arrival of the Spirit is to our advantage. It is better for us than if it happened otherwise. And so we're going to shape this discussion this morning around two questions. The first question is, why is it better for us that Jesus leaves? And then why is it better for us that He sends the Spirit? Those are what we need to answer so we can understand why Jesus says this to the disciples and how we should respond to it. The first part of this, He says, it's better that I go away. You know, he doesn't tell us here. We don't see them interrupting him. 
But I think from what we see in the Gospels elsewhere, like when Jesus says He's going to the cross and die, and Peter interrupts Him and says it's never going to happen, that when He says this, when He says it's better for you that I leave, I imagine that the disciples wouldn't have agreed. And for most of us, we probably wouldn't agree either. As we think about how to live our lives, if I have the option between choosing from between the Spirit which I have to kind of discern internally, and a actual physical Jesus who I can go to and ask and say, should I do this or should I not do this? That seems easier. That seems better. That seems more to my advantage than Him going away and sending the Spirit to live inside of me and to guide me. But, hopefully, we all recognize that Jesus is smarter than we are. He is wiser than we are. He knows what's best for us. He knows what's to our advantage. And He says that it's to our advantage that He leaves. And so the question is how? How is it better for us that Jesus goes away? Well, in our verse, there's some kind of implicit answers and some explicit answers. So we're going to talk about the implied things first. And specifically, what we need to recognize here is that there are three things that happen after this point that are to our advantage that wouldn't happen if Jesus doesn't leave. There's three things that happen after this point that if Jesus doesn't leave the disciples, if He doesn't leave the earth, they cannot happen. The first of those things is He dies. Jesus doesn't leave the disciples because He's tired of them. He doesn't leave the disciples because, man, these are just a contentious bunch of people who just don't get it. I teach them week after week after week, and I just get on my nerves. And so I'm out. That's not Jesus. He's not leaving because he's tired of them. He's not leaving because he just needs a break from discipleship. He's leaving because he's going to do something for them and for us. And one of the ways he does that is by dying. Jesus leaves because he's headed to the cross. He knows what's coming next. That's why he's preparing them for it. He goes and he dies and he suffers as a criminal. He's betrayed by one of his friends. He's betrayed by one of his disciples. He's tried and convicted by the Jews and the Romans, and then he's executed as a criminal. That's what happens historically. That's what the Gospels tell us. But theologically, we know that a whole lot more is going on in his death. He's not dying just to die. He's dying to pay the penalty for all of my sin and all of your sin, past, present, and future. And with that, He's not just paying the penalty, He's also purchasing our freedom from its power. He dies to free us from both the penalty of sin and its power over us. Paul says it this way. In Romans 6, he says that all believers have been united with Christ in His death and one who has died has been set free from sin. Jesus' death is to our advantage. It is better for us, for Him to leave the disciples, to leave this earth by dying for our sin and to free us from its power than if He didn't do that. If He didn't do that, we're still dead in our sin. And so clearly, now that's a, a big way, theologically it's to our advantage, but it's also to our advantage in, in practical daily ways when we recognize that He's actually freed us from sin, that like Paul says, one who has died with Christ, those who have trusted in Christ and in Christ alone for salvation have died with Him. 
And he says, one who has died has been set free from sin. When we get that, when we understand that, what that means is that when we sin, when we give in to lust or anger or gossip or any other sin, when we do that, it's not because you know we've just been overcome by this force outside of us that is stronger than us. It's not because our flesh is just too powerful for us and we can't fight it. It's not because the, the world presses in on us. It's not because the enemy attacks us. When we give in to sin, if what Paul says is true about what Jesus has done, we give in because we choose to. One who has died has been set free from sin. So if I get angry, if I lust, if I gossip, it's because I'm saying I want to be enslaved to this again. It's not because I've been overcome by it. Jesus' death is to our advantage because it makes that statement true. And we need to believe the truth of the Gospel instead of the lies that sin or Satan or the world tells us. And when we do sin, we need to own that and not say, oh, it was her fault or his fault or you know, just the way I was brought up. I have this history in my family of this thing. My mom's angry. My dad's angry. My grandma's angry. That's why I get angry. No. You get angry because you choose to. Because your sin is more important to you than Christ. His death is to our advantage. It's also to our advantage that He rises from the dead. The New Testament tells us that we're not only united with Him in His death, we're also united with Him in His life. When Jesus rises from the dead. In His resurrection, He doesn't just come back to life like we see in the stories of, of Stephen, sorry, not Stephen, in the story of Lazarus or, or Eutychus in the book of Acts when those guys rise from the dead. They died again. right? Sometime after when Lazarus rises from the dead in the book of John, he dies for good. He stays dead. Jesus rises to a different kind of life. New Testament tells us that death no longer has dominion over him. And in that same chapter in Romans 6 where he's talking about how we're united with Christ in his death, he also says we're united with him in his life. We are raised to a new kind of life when we trust in Christ for salvation. The word tells us that if anyone in Christ is, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. What that means is that by virtue of His resurrection, by being united with Him in this new kind of life, that when we trust in Christ, we are different than we were before. Not just our behavior, not just our actions, not just what we say, not just what we think, but we're actually different. We live a new kind of life in which death doesn't hold the same kind of power. In His resurrection, Jesus brings about this beginning of a, of a process of new creation or recreation which isn't going to stop until everything is made new. His death and His resurrection are to our advantage. If those things don't happen, then the rest of the New Testament doesn't matter. In addition to His death and resurrection, there's a third event that happens after this, as Jesus leaves. And it's one that we don't really think about that much. But after this, you know, Jesus rises from the dead. He spends a period of about 40 days teaching the disciples about who He is, 
how they should understand his death and his resurrection and about the kingdom of God. So he's teaching them. He's spending all this time with them. He's appearing to all these different people. And then he ascends into heaven. And the book of Hebrews tells us that he ascends into heaven where he always lives to make intercession on our behalf. So after his death, after his resurrection, Jesus goes to heaven and he's there and he's interceding on our behalf. And he does this in two major ways. And I think this is important because when we think about intercession, we think about us praying for one another. So Sean comes to me and he says, you know, we need to buy a new car and we don't have the money and I just really need you to pray for me about this. And so if we take that kind of understanding of intercession and translate that to Jesus, then Jesus just becomes this buddy that I go to when I really need something. You know, I I can pray to the Father, but if I really want to get this thing, I'll ask Jesus, and Jesus will ask his dad for me, and then I'll probably get it. That's not how he intercedes on our behalf. He intercedes on our behalf primarily by doing what Paul says when he, he calls him a mediator. He says there's one God... And there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus intercedes for us by standing in front of the Father and saying, don't kill them for their sin. He stands between us and God and says, I will take their punishment. I am interceding for them. They can have my righteousness. He intercedes for us not in simple, practical ways, but in huge cosmic ways. He stands between us and His Father's wrath and takes it for us. And He also intercedes for us by opening the way for us to have access to God. Whenever we pray to God, we're praying to God because of what Jesus has done. Without Him, we do not have access to God. First Peter says it this way, it says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteousness, that He might bring us to God. One purpose of His death was that it would open a pathway for us to God. And so He intercedes for us by mediating between us and the Father and also by opening the door so that we can even approach Him. Without these things, if... Jesus doesn't leave. If He doesn't leave the disciples, if He doesn't die on the cross, if He doesn't rise from the dead, if He doesn't ascend into heaven and intercede on our behalf, then we cannot have any hope that we will have salvation or be able to do the things that He's called us to do once we are saved. These things are to our advantage. Because if they don't happen, we have no hope. The disciples probably didn't understand all this here. In John 16, they probably still thought, I don't think it is to our advantage. I think you should stay. But hopefully, in light of everything that happens after this, in light of our understanding of it, we should get that it is really to our advantage that Jesus leaves. Even though it might be practically easier for us to ask Him point-blank answer questions and get point-blank answers from Him, I think we would much rather actually have salvation and actually be equipped to live how He calls us to live. And if that's not you, then we should probably talk afterwards about that. 
Jesus also gives us another reason in this verse of why it is to their advantage, why it is to our advantage that He leaves. He says, For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. So it's not just to our advantage that Jesus goes to the cross and dies and rises again and ascends into heaven and intercedes on our behalf. Those things are to our advantage. But He also says it's to our advantage that He leaves because once He leaves, He's going to send the Helper to us. And this Helper that Jesus sends, He told them earlier in John 14.26 that the Helper is the Holy Spirit. That's who this Helper is. He's going to leave and He's going to send them the Spirit. He's not going to leave them alone. He's going to send them to be with them. And he's saying in this verse, it's better for them, it's better for us that he goes and sends this Holy Spirit to us. And this word, this name for the Spirit, helper, I think is a little bit confusing to us. Because whenever I use the word helper, and probably whenever you use the word helper, we think of someone that's, that's underneath us. Someone that's kind of subordinate to us. Whenever I'm doing a project around the house, I usually recruit our little girls to be my helpers. They hold screwdrivers, hold various parts, and are there just kind of helping. But I don't view them as someone who's able to accomplish the task for me if I can't do it. That's not a helper. That's a teacher. But this word here, and it's, it's translated a lot of different ways. If you look at five different translations of the Bible, you're probably going to get five different names for the Spirit. You'll see comforter, or advocate, or helper, or counselor. And what they're getting at is that this, this, this is kind of a, a legal term used to describe someone that intervenes on behalf of someone else. They stand in their place. They, it's, it's really fairly similar to a lawyer. You can't defend yourself in court. You can't represent yourself in court because you don't have the right training. So you get someone else to do that for you. They act as your advocate. They help you with your case. And the Holy Spirit helps us. He is our helper. He is our advocate by doing in us and through us what we cannot do on our own. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He helps us by doing in us and through us what we can't do on our own. And I think that this is the reason why we don't ever pray, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Because we rarely do anything that we can't do ourselves. He helps us by doing in us and through us what we can't do on our own. As we think about the Holy Spirit's work, as we think about His ministry, it's helpful to think about it in three categories. We're going to work through these. He does three things. He reveals Christ. He grows us in our faith. And He equips us for ministry. That's what the Spirit does. He reveals Christ. He grows us in our faith. And He equips us for ministry. Now, obviously, there's, there's overlap between these, right? The Spirit can't reveal Christ to us in a way that doesn't help us grow in our faith. We can't, He can't equip us for ministry if we don't know who Jesus is. And so, these things work together. They're not things that happen in isolation from one another. So, number one, He reveals Christ. 
The Word says that the Holy Spirit bears witness to Jesus. When people need to know who Jesus is, when people need to understand what He's done, the Holy Spirit is the one who teaches them. In John 15.26 it says, He will bear witness about Me. In 14.26, he says that he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. What Jesus is telling the disciples is that once I'm gone, you don't need to worry about having a limited knowledge of me. He's telling them that the Holy Spirit is going to teach them what they need to know about Christ. He's going to help them remember what Jesus said. And so when we look at the Gospels, and if you read through the Gospels, it doesn't take long to get to a point where they say, We didn't really understand this at the time, but we understood it afterwards. What's happening there is the Holy Spirit is revealing to that author who Jesus is. He's helping them remember things that Jesus did during His life that they couldn't remember otherwise. And I think in a similar way, He reveals Christ to us. He teaches us more about who Jesus is and what He's done. He does that through us reading the Word. He does that through talking with one another about who Jesus is. The Spirit reveals Christ to us. The Word also tells us that the Spirit glorifies Jesus. That's a major purpose in the Spirit coming. He tells them that in verse 14 of chapter 16 of John. He says, He will glorify Me. And the reality is is that for most of us, we get kind of freaked out when we talk about the Holy Spirit or when we learn about the Holy Spirit because we've seen so many bad expressions of it. When we hear Holy Spirit or someone ministering through the Holy Spirit, we think of some dude in a white suit who's on TV, who's walking up to people and smacking them in the head and saying all kinds of weird stuff. Maybe that's just me, but that's what I think of. I think of these crazy, charismatic people who do weird things and then kind of tag the Holy Spirit onto it. But when we remember that the primary thing the Spirit does is reveal Christ and glorify Christ, that helps us kind of put a check on these bad expressions. When someone says the Holy Spirit's doing something, is the Holy Spirit glorifying Christ? Or is it glorifying some man who's got all these people coming and giving him all this money, and he's got all these TV shows. I would say that's a pretty good indication that that's not the Spirit. It's something else. Because the Spirit glorifies Christ. Holy Spirit also grows us in our faith. This is number two. The Holy Spirit is the primary agent in our sanctification. We grow in Christ because of the Spirit's work within us. So if you're someone who this morning says, you know, I'm just not growing like I want to, it's probably because the Spirit isn't working in your life. He is who grows us in our faith. 1 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says this. He says, We, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul is saying that we are being transformed from who we were before Christ into something greater, into something beyond ourselves. And he says, the way this happens, it comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Spirit does this. He is who grows us in our faith. That's how we progress in the Christian life. It's not by 
you know, memorizing the right verses, not by reading the right Bible passages every day, not by doing the right things. We grow in our faith because the Spirit does that work within us. And one of the ways the Spirit does that is by convicting us of sin. If we were to go on in this passage in, in John 16 and verse 8, he says that when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin. He will convict us of sin. And so if you're somebody who thinks that you're doing pretty well, it's because the Spirit's not working in your life. Because when the Spirit works in our life, He points out sin. And He doesn't just point it out and leave us helpless, but He also helps us fight sin. In Romans, Paul says that if we do the deeds of the flesh, if we live in the flesh, we will die. But if by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body, we will live. Live in the flesh, death. Spiritual and physical. But if by the Spirit, when the Spirit convicts sin, if we put that sin to death, we'll live. We'll have both spiritual life and physical life. We cannot grow in our faith without the Spirit working in us. If we have the illusion that we're doing this, it's because He's not convicting the sin that we have. In addition to revealing Christ and growing us in our faith, He also equips us for ministry. We're going to talk about this next week when we go through you know, 1 Corinthians 12-14. through 14. We talk about these gifts He gives to us and He gives to the church so that we can minister for Him in His kingdom. But we should also recognize this morning that it's, it's the Spirit that enables us to share Christ. In Acts 1, as the, the disciples are, are waiting to do what He's called them to do, He's told them to wait for the Spirit. They can't go out and fulfill the mission He's given them until the Spirit falls. And Jesus tells them, He says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They cannot bear witness to Him without the Spirit. Until the Spirit falls, until they receive that power from the Spirit, they're not ready. And the reality is, is that we try to go out before the Spirit falls. We try to share Christ without His involvement in our life. And I imagine that that's why we don't see much success is because we're trying to do it from just sheer force of will. And it's something that we cannot, absolutely cannot do without Him. So the question this morning for us is, what do we do about all of this? I know that I've just thrown a ton of stuff at you. Lots of passages, lots of verses, which none of us, not even me, at the end of this week, most of the stuff I'm going to have forgotten about. So I know that you guys are going to forget about it. There's no way we're going to remember it all. The reality is, is that what we need to get, the goal of, of all of this is not to communicate this list of things that we need to memorize and know so that you know, we can go out and live in the Spirit. The goal of all of this is just to show us how much we need the Spirit in our lives. To show us how many things we absolutely cannot do if He's not working in us. 
It's not just the big things like healing and miracles. Even the day-to-day stuff like fighting sin and living how He's called us to live, we cannot do those things without Him. What Jesus is talking about in John 16-7 has happened. This is in the past. He has gone away. He has sent the Spirit. These things really are to our advantage. Whether we acknowledge that and live like that or not. And so what we need to do is... I think first and foremost is we need to repent of our neglect of the Spirit. Instead of praying with David, take not your Holy Spirit from me, we need to say, help me recognize that I have it. Help me live in such a way that I need Him. Give me a desire to do what You've called me to do so that I can walk in obedience to Your Word. And with that, you know, we talk all the time about how we need to understand the Gospel and we need to know who Jesus is and what He's done for us. And obviously, those are good things. But we also need to know and understand who the Spirit is and what He does for us. You know, most of us approach the Holy Spirit like the King James Bible. It's the Holy Ghost. You know, it's this thing that just kind of freaks us out, so we just stay away. I'm not going to go in that house because it's creepy and there might be a ghost in there. I'm not going to do anything that's going to require the Holy Spirit because something might happen in my life that I can't understand and explain, so I'm just going to stay away from that realm. But what we need to see is that it's not just the crazy supernatural things that the Spirit does. It is the everyday things in our lives. And we need to get that the sending of the Spirit is something that Jesus died for. The Spirit is just, isn't just some afterthought between Him and the Father of, well, you know, since I'm going away, they're going to need somebody here to help them. It's part of His plan all along. He knows that the only way we're going to be able to do what He's called us to do is through the sending of the Spirit. And His death on our behalf is one of the things that provides for Him to come. And so we need to repent of how we've neglected Him and we need to pray and ask the Spirit to do what the Spirit does. I know that that kind of weirds us out because we don't usually pray to the Spirit. Sometimes we don't even mention the Spirit in our prayers. Father, Son, check, check. Probably not going to get there. The Word tells us the Spirit does all these things for us. Why are we hesitant to ask Him to do what He says He'll do? We don't have to say, is it God's will for me to grow in Christ? It is God's will. He tells us. But unless we're dependent upon Him, unless we're asking Him to do these things, unless we're orienting our lives around what the Spirit does, it's not going to happen. I think we ask the Spirit to exalt Christ to us. We ask the Spirit to teach us about Christ. We ask the Spirit to convict us of sin. And we listen when He does. Most of us spend all of our time quenching the Spirit. 
Quenching the Spirit, I think, is just a way the New Testament refers to us ignoring or neglecting or not letting the Spirit do what the Spirit does. And so when the Spirit convicts us of sin and we say, I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to hear it. What we're saying to the Spirit is, I don't want you in my life. When we feel prompted to share the Gospel, when the Spirit wants to reveal Christ through us and we say, I'm too busy, too nervous, too scared, I'm too whatever. What we're saying is, Spirit, we don't want You to do what You do. We want to do what we want to do. So we're just going to ignore You. So what we need to do is spend time asking the Spirit to do what the Spirit does, to quit quenching Him, to quit neglecting Him, and let Him work. And I know that that is not practical. That does not give us a specific list of steps to do, but like the, the Spirit does what the Spirit does. Like when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, He's like, well, he's like a wind that goes where he wants and you can't control and you don't know where he's going or where he's coming from. And Nicodemus says, what? And that's who the Spirit is. We can't control it. We can't predict it. We can't force it to do what we want it to do. And that's why we just ignore it. But we need to quit. Let's pray. God, we confess that parts of who You are are off-putting and freak us out and make us uncomfortable. Because we want You to be more like us. We want to be able to use You for our own ends. We want to do only what we want to do and to disregard everything else. But God, we recognize that that is sin. And so we ask that You would help us to love and desire a relationship with You as Holy Spirit just like we love and desire a relationship with You as as Father and as, as Son. That we would recognize that it really is to our advantage that You have sent the Spirit. That we cannot do even the most basic things in our life in a way that glorifies You without the Spirit's work in us. Spirit, we need You to reveal Jesus to us. We need You to glorify Christ amongst us. We need You to exalt Him and humble us. 
We need You to grow us in our faith. To convict us of sin again and again and again. And to help us renounce it when You point it out. And Spirit, we need You to equip us for ministry. We are useless in the church and in one another's lives and in the city of Hannibal and in this world if You don't shape us and transform us and empower us to do what You've called us to do. We recognize that just like we are without hope for salvation, without Christ, we are without hope of growth without Your Spirit. Jesus, we thank You for these words this morning. And that even though they lead us to things that we don't understand, we know that we need them. Jesus, we thank You that You did leave. That You did die and rise again. That You did ascend into heaven and You do intercede on our behalf. We thank You that You have freed us from both the penalty of sin and its power. And that You open the way for us to have a relationship with You. I thank You that You did send the Spirit pray that You would help us not to neglect Him or to quench Him, but to embrace and follow Him. It's in Your name we pray. Amen.